This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, is anybody here for the first time today? Okay, great. So happy to see some uh, yoga students here, yoga peeps. Um, well, my name is Jen Homan, and I'm a, a resident at Jikoji. I've uh, been living here for the last about 22 months, and I lived here previously for about three years, um, 10 years prior to, to this time. I've <sighs> been thinking a lot over the last couple of weeks about um, this topic. My topic is transformation and Zen practice. And of course, what always happens is the day of, you know, the best laid plans, always something happens and changes a little bit. So we'll see, uh, we'll see what that happens to today, what that looks like. I'm going to start with a, a, a little excerpt from Zen Flash, Zen Bones. Um, it's by Chuang Su, and it's, happiness is the absence of striving for happiness. Why must I meditate in order to achieve enlightenment, demanded the prince of his teacher. I can study. I can pray. I can think on issues clearly. Why the silly emptying of the mind? I will show you, said the teacher, taking a bucket of water into the garden under the full moon. Now I stir the surface, and what do you see? Ribbons of light, answered the prince. Now wait, said the teacher, setting the bucket down. Both teacher and boy watched the calming surface of the water in the bamboo bucket for many minutes. Now what do you see? asked the teacher. The moon, replied the prince. So too, young master, the only way to grasp enlightenment is through a calm and settled mind. One more story from another um, recognized teacher, Jack Cornfield, who's still alive. This is from um, his book, The Teachings of the Buddha. A man approached the Blessed One and wanted to have all his philosophical questions answered before he would practice. In response, the Buddha said, it is as if a man had been wounded by a poisoned arrow, and when intended to by a physician were to say, I will not allow you to remove this arrow until I have learned the case, the age, the occupation, the birthplace, and the motivation of the person who wounded me. That man would die before having learned all of this. In exactly the same way, anyone who should say, I will not follow the teaching of the Blessed One until the Blessed One has explained all the multiform truths of the world, that person would die before the Buddha had explained all of this. So what does this have to do with transformation and Zen practice? Uh, outside of the zendo, after our service this morning, I saw a, a moth with a, a broken wing. And I often think of my own transformation with my practice as like the cycle of a butterfly. So a butterfly has to lay eggs on a very specific plant because the butterfly eggs, you know, as a little caterpillar hatching out of that egg, it can't travel very far. So from the moment that this little egg is planted, there has to be 
there are certain conditions that are right for that, those little eggs to survive. And many of those eggs don't survive. And when they do hatch, they start eating. And all they can do is eat. And that tiny little thing that comes out of that little egg will grow in its size by over 100 times just by being put on the right leaf at the right time, the right time of the year with the right conditions without having insects or anything else to come and all the other things that it has to do. So it goes from the cycle of egg to this caterpillar, to this little worm type thing. And the only purpose of that little caterpillar is to just eat and eat and eat and eat. And then magically, somehow, it's had enough to eat, it's consumed enough, where it starts this process, it goes into a chrysalis. And it forms this nest around itself, very protective, very safe, but yet really, really fragile at the same time. If it's disturbed even a little bit, or if it's helped along its way, that caterpillar will die. We know that a butterfly could come out of the chrysalis, and I've often wondered, does the caterpillar know what it's changing into? In doing some research for this idea of the butterfly, um, there's a really great website where they actually have, scientifically, they've figured out a way to look inside of the cocoon without disturbing it to see sort of what happens to certain cells and certain parts. And if you've ever seen a butterfly and you've seen a caterpillar that hasn't turned into the butterfly, they're completely different. Caterpillar is long and kind of stubby. It's got these tiny little legs and it just kind of crawls and it, you know, pretty much just eats. And then through this time in the chrysalis, you know, as it starts to emerge, you know, its wings are all folded up. Some of its DNA knows to change into wings. Some of it changes into more eyes. Some of it changes into long legs. It's, it's an amazing process. Um, as a kid, we had a uh, project where we had a little chrysalis and we got to watch it for a couple weeks and then um, some of the butterflies hatched and some of them didn't and I remember the excitement I felt as a kid when my butterfly survived and we could let it go and it could be free and it could fly and it was so cool um, I actually had a pet butterfly not related to this to this little experiment but um, as a little kid there was this monarch butterfly that decided it liked me one day. And I didn't bring the picture today, but I have a picture that my mom took. I was probably about seven years old. I have this rainbow shirt on, and I have this butterfly that I named Nancy right in between my eyes. It's my, my favorite picture in my entire life up to this point because um, at the time I was just excited because this butterfly just wanted to be around me. And I had her for maybe a couple weeks until, um, you know, obviously the cycle of life continues and she died and uh, I blamed it on my brother at the time because I thought it was because he set her jar out you know on the counter and I remember how angry I was for a little while and now that I'm older obviously I realize that a butterfly after it hatches after it lays its eggs after it breeds you know it only has a couple weeks in that part of its cycle and then it dies you know and hopefully it's laid eggs to kind of continue the cycle again I think it's a perfect metaphor for practice. Uh, I've gone through many transformations in my own life, um, from child, discovering butterflies, walking around, to teenage years, you know, getting all those hormones and the rushes, getting sucked into real life after graduating in college, moving to New York, 
um, getting kind of put into a life that, you know, wasn't really, wasn't really a lot of thought going into until, boom, something happened where I had to change everything. I'd been working in a bar for many years, nightclub, uh, drinking for a lot of that time, deciding not to drink for a little while, started doing some yoga after I quit drinking. And then I decided to come to Jokoji and do a sashin because I thought doing a week of sashin would be fun. Yeah. Yeah, it changed my life after seven days of meditation. Was it, was it fun? Actually, the first one was kind of the honeymoon, I have to say. I, I really enjoyed it. But when I tried going back into my life back in Minneapolis, trying to go in the bar, trying to pretend that I could just do what I had been doing, I couldn't. I was changed. The cocoon of Jokoji for seven days altered my ability to be able to go in and, and be happy dealing with uh, people through no fault of their own were coping with their lives in different ways and, you know, escaping in, in certain ways. And I was enabling that. Um, that was really hard to walk back into. And um, I couldn't do it for much longer after that. You know, I think between that Sashin and when I sold all my things, packed my stuff into a car and came out to Jokoji to live the first time, uh, it was about three months. And it was a hard three months because I had to figure out how I was going to pay my bills, how I was going to get up really, really early after having been used to pretty much going to bed at about 4 a.m. and kind of having a lot of free time. You know, I could work a few days a week in the bar and I made great money. It was that aspect of it was fantastic. But then to realized that I needed to switch gears and how I wasn't going to be able to do that much longer. It took a big, took a lot of work. And for a while after um, moving to Jokoji, it took me a little while to be able to find work that was in alignment with this practice. And fortunately, um, the studio owner in San Jose gave me an opportunity to be, to be weekend supervisor. So I could have my yoga practice. I could afford to take my yoga and um, could continue that. And it provided a little bit of income so that I could exist at Chikoji and, and do this practice. So I kind of came into Zen practice on accident. And um, here I am, you know, 10 years later, and I've decided that I'm going to take my practice to another step. Um, Three years ago, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and this isn't going to be about breast cancer, but it was another one of those kind of wake-up calls from the universe. Uh, I had to change everything. I had a job that I loved. It took a lot of time. Um, people that I really loved working for, but physically, I could not do it anymore. I needed to go inward. I needed to go in a cocoon, and I needed to heal. And it was another one of those big wake-up calls because physically, I just... I couldn't do it anymore, and I don't look very sick right now, and I'm grateful for that because some of the changes that I've made have, have helped that to happen. It's part of the transformation. You know, the first thing I did after I got diagnosed was I sat. I had to teach a class in 15 minutes, two classes actually, at the studio in San Mateo, and I got the phone call 15 minutes before I had to teach. So I sat. 
Coben says that sometimes when you realize the reality of everything, all you can do is sit. And that was literally the only thing I could do. I couldn't even cry because I was so just shocked and amazed. And uh, I knew I was going to have 20 people show up that they needed a teacher. They didn't need uh, a cancer patient. They needed somebody that was going to give them their class and have their day. And I wasn't going to load them with that. So I don't think that the, the butterfly cycle is just we're doing one thing at one time. I think in many areas, areas of our life, we're doing a little bit of every of those areas. I think in my yoga practice, I kind of feel like I'm at the butterfly stage where I get to kind of fly and float around. Um, in taking this next step into the, to the Zen practice, I kind of feel like I'm at the egg stage again. I'm trying to absorb as much as I can being around here. Um, learning from, from people that are older and have more experience than I am, who seem to have wisdom, which is one of the things that I'm trying to cultivate. So I want to show you one of the things that's in my Zen practice right now. And you can see I'm wearing a blue one of these, and it's called a Rakasu. And uh, the one that I had to sew 10 years ago was a little bit easier to sew because my eyes were better, and I didn't realize how many stitches were in it, and um, I really enjoy sewing practice even now. So I'd like to pass this around so that you can see um, the individual stitches. And part of the practice that we do is everything, it's hand sewn, and you see Andy's got his robes and his rakasu on, and his robe is a bigger version of this. So we sew an individual little one that's got all these little pieces, and then we sew a larger one that we actually wear, and if you could pass that around. And you can look on the front and the back side. Each one of those stitches, we're saying namakiya butsu, namakiya ho, namakiya so. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. And you notice that we said that in today's sutra that we did. Every stitch. And it's been my practice for the last six months to sew a little bit, do a little bit of work, do a little bit of studying, try to do a little bit of yoga in there. And I've been um, doing some alternative sort of medicines to help to heal my body. And a great piece of advice I got from um, a female teacher, Barbara Anderson, who was here, Mado, as many of you may know her, um, she told me that when I have anything come up, to put it into the rakasu, put it into my robes. You know, so when I get scared that I'm having some side effect from these medicines that I'm on. It's a great opportunity to sit down and sew, or a great opportunity to sit down on your cushion. And even if you're not choosing to sew your rakasu or, or to choose, you, we kind of do the same thing when we sit on our cushion. Um, this cushion is kind of a little bit of a cocoon. And when you have the opportunity to come to Jokoji, it's even more so, because then you also have the sangha with you and the people that are helping here to support your practice. And we've got great residents that live here, and we're here to support your practice too, besides our teacher Mike and all the other teachers that come and visit. You know, when you come here, it is a cocoon. It's a safe place. You come, you know that the talk is only gonna be so long. You know, lunch is gonna be at 12.30. And as a practitioner here, I know that in the morning, I'm gonna sit Monday through Friday in the morning and there's opportunity to sit in the afternoon, and we do sashins four times a year. 
There's actually a, a study session next weekend that you might be interested in coming to. We have a great teacher, Kokio Henkel, that's going to be here. And uh, we're going to be going into some really interesting, of, interesting aspects of a more um, sort of like scholarly perspective. Um, for me in my own practice, I really enjoy the sitting because I can be very active and I can find momentum. And at Chikoti, there's always something that could be done to make the place cleaner or fix it for somebody else or fix it up for yourself. There's, there's always something that can, that can be done here. And I, I really appreciate that because I'm kind of a moving meditation kind of person. But when I take that opportunity to sit, it's like, oh, okay, yeah. turns the momentum off. And if I'm having a day where I'm thinking a lot about my health or I'm thinking about something irritating that happened to me at the yoga studio or a conversation that I had with somebody that didn't quite go the way that I wanted it to, I can sit and I can kind of let it phase out rather than just operating on momentum every single day. Um, we could probably do a, a whole talk on taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha. I did take some notes. One of my favorite teachers is a guy named Chungyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And uh, much of this stuff comes from um, an article that I found on the web that he said, the decision to become a Buddhist. <sighs> so, the idea of taking refuge in the Buddha or deciding that you're going to become a Buddhist, it's sort of uh, taking a definite vow to enter a discipline of choicelessness. He says that it saves us a lot of money, a lot of energy, and lots of superfluous thinking. Maybe the approach seems repressive, but it's really based on a sympathetic attitude towards our situation. To work on ourselves is really only possible when there are no sidetracks, no exits. Usually we, look, we tend to look for solutions from something new, something outside, a change in society or politics, a new diet, a new theory, or else we are always finding new things to blame our problems on, such as relationships, society, what have you. Working on oneself with such exits or sidetracks is the Buddhist path. I love having that opportunity to, to be here and to, to really have that time to work on myself. It's been great to have that space to be Jen, whatever that is today. And it's different than it was yesterday. It's different than when I sat down this morning, I was feeling all jumbly and nervous. And then I sit here with my Sangha and I feels like, oh yeah, Okay, these people are with me. We're on the same boat in this. The idea of the Buddha is this person, and there are many Buddhas throughout history, but many people tend to agree that the Buddha, the one who originally sat down underneath the Bodhi tree and had this experience of enlightenment, maybe had a good process going on. Um, he could have decided to just be enlightened and go off, but he decided to come back and share, share his process with us. 
and that's how we even made it to sitting in groups and all of this stuff. It's kind of neat to think that uh, these tools we can use even now, 2,500 years later, they, they apply. There's truth in that. Trungpa Rinpoche says that the Buddhist practice is kind of a practice in loneliness because you're learning how to not blame other people, that everything around you is you, talking to you. You take refuge in the Buddha because that's a lot to take on, you know? If you really think about it, sometimes that can create a sense of loneliness or aloneness, like, hey, wow, how did I get myself into this? You know, I've certainly felt that in certain situations in my life. And when I get into that feeling now, presently, I just take refuge in the fact that, wow, okay, this is where I'm at today. What can I do today? You know, I can read something that's comforting. I can sit, and I tend to sit a lot more than I read the sutras or read the scriptures because where I'm at today, just sitting still and not putting more information into my head feels really good some days. When we take refuge in the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma, we take refuge in the Dharma as a path, a path through all of the stuff that's going on. I mean, look in the media today. There's so many things that we are bombarded with. Some uncomfortable to look at, some maybe pleasant and joyful. You know, there's so many options. How do you see your way through it? You know, if you don't take the time to sit and you operate on momentum, where does that lead you? You know, all sorts of different places. On this path, once we realize these things, we realize that everything is sacred, the good stuff, the bad stuff, everything in between our judgments of this is the way it has to be, this is the way it is. It's heavy, you know? Getting that diagnosis that, wow, how am I going to live with this for the rest of my life? Or relationship problems, you know, relationship that we thought was going to be there forever that isn't, you know, whether it be a significant, you know, partner relationship or a teacher or a parent or child, loss is a really real part of our lives, our practice. Dharma is also passionlessness which means not grasping, holding on, or trying to possess. It means non-aggression. So when we take refuge in the Dharma as a path, we sense that it's worthwhile to walk on the earth. And for me, it definitely gives me reason to do the things that I have to do every day to be healthy to find happiness, to be joyful, even if it's helping a butterfly with its wounded, wounded wing off of the 
patio into some plants so that it won't get stepped on. I find joy in that. I find joy when I teach yoga class and seeing students who haven't exercised in 20 years come in, they take a class that's hard, they realize it's hard and it's challenging and yet they come back over and over and over again. And then maybe in a year or so they say, oh my gosh, wow, I'm so grateful that you said this. And I've been saying that to them for the last year, but they, they get it. It finally sunk in in a way where they changed something, where it was a big shift for them. I love that. I love being the catalyst. I've been doing a lot of research on Lyme disease. I got bit by a couple um, ticks and had some little rashes that popped up. And of course, uh, I was dumb enough to put a picture of it on Facebook and got my mom all worried. So I decided to uh, do some research on it. And what's really interesting, besides the the complexity of Lyme and, and some of the co-infections that can happen. It's, what struck me is that the bacteria, these tiny little bacteria that can cause so much havoc in our lives, they call them spirochetes, they have uh, an, an innate intelligence within them that this little thing, that when it feeds on the right kind of things, it can explode in your body and it can create all sorts of messy things. But if it's exposed to antibiotics, it can change its form so it knows how to hide in the body. Slowly and surely, this tiny little thing crawls to the areas that it wants to get to so that it can feed and so that it can survive. And there's other forms too. It can go into a cyst form. You know, it can hide. It can change the way that it adapts itself to the body. There's even like the special coating that it can create so that your immune system doesn't even recognize it. You know, and it can continue the thing. And it can be a little bit scary you know, if you think about, wow, okay, this could really go off in that direction. But without going into that line of thought, thinking about like this unique, tiny little cell, the intelligence in it that just wants to live, you realize how precious any little bit of life is. And as humans, we're so fortunate that we get all these choices to sort through. You know, a plant is kind of stuck where it's at. And it's kind of neat to think that plants have evolved over millions of years to deal with bacteria, you know, and there's actually some really great plants that are weeds that are really great to take for Lyme disease. And there's actually been studies shown that this thing called Japanese knotweed appeared in all of the areas where Lyme became really prevalent six months before Lyme became big deal. And people are trying to rip this weed out of their yards. And it's one of the most effective things that you can take to kind of control these little spirochetes. You know, it's amazing nature. In the middle of Chikoji, we get to see that. We get to sit with the trees and the turkeys, the birds. This morning I woke up at about five, a little bit after 5 a.m. because the birds were so loud. It was amazing. I love that. Sun was just starting to come up and the life, you know, kind of settles down for a little while and then it explodes. It settles down for a little while and explodes. I think all life has that cycle. With the Dharma, nothing is regarded as a waste of time. Nothing is seen as a punishment or as a cause of a resentment and complaint. We experience life, ordinary life. Pain is pain, pleasure is pleasure. I think there's something to this Trungpa Rinpoche guy. 
It's beautiful. Taking refuge in the Sangha. That's the third part. Namakiya so. These people that are here with us, choosing to do this practice, knowing that we are going to fail. Guess what? Today, if you put your heart out there, you do something, it might not turn out the way that you expect it's going to. And that's okay. There's people here that want to help you, that will help you. There's people that have been helping you all along, even if you haven't realized it. It's heavy. When I think of all of the different lives that have supported my life up until this point, when I got sick, when I'm trying to return to health, my very first yoga class that I ever taught about nine years ago, got out of this intense teacher training and I was expected that I actually had to teach. And it's a long class, it's 90 minutes. There's a couple people here that know. There's a lot of words in that class. And 90 minutes trying to talk is, even if you kind of know the words, you know, you still kind of have to teach what's happening in the class because the words that you think that you might say, you might not need for a class that everybody knows what they're doing. Or you have that first timer that is interpreting what you're saying in a completely different way and you don't want them to hurt themselves. You have to think quickly, you know? We have to do that in our daily lives every day, you know? Somebody goes through a red light unexpectedly, if you're not paying attention, there can be some pretty bad consequences with that. Or we get in an argument with somebody and we say the words that hurt them rather than help them. So we can look at taking refuge in the Sangha as having companionship. In some ways, yeah, we, it's our job to fix ourselves. You can't expect anybody else to fix you. And if you do, eventually you're setting yourself up for disappointment. You're responsible for you. And you have enough to do it. You have what it takes to live your life. Sometimes we just need reminders, you know? And I think that's kind of the, the wonderful thing about Sangha is sometimes, you know, we need to hear that thing that's uncomfortable. How do we know if it's to help us? How do we know if it's to hurt us? If you're operating on momentum, guess what? That's your momentum talking. Take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Dharma, take refuge in the Sangha. Namakiya Butsu, Namakiya Ho, Namakiya So. I kind of feel like that's my guardian angel these days.
grateful for all my teachers. So grateful for my friends and my family. Grateful for the little gray cat, Bodie, who's been helping me so and has been leaving traces of her little kittiness all over the black stuff. I think I'm most grateful for the change, though, that happens. Uncomfortable change, yeah, but growth. You know, and I know that just like that butterfly, my time is going to end someday. You know, I'm only 48. Never thought about the idea that, oh, my time was limited until being diagnosed with cancer. But honestly, it's like a wake-up call. Wow, hey, what are you going to do today? I have so many choices available to me. But I know that I'm going to sit. And I know I'm going to feel better after I sit. Some, sometimes while I'm sitting, I don't feel so great. Sometimes when I take yoga class, I don't feel so great, but I know after I do it, wow, okay, hey, there's space, there's openness, there's freedom, there's trust. Trust that I have what it takes. We look at these beautiful butterflies flying around or the moths, and the scientists say that the only purpose of a butterfly is to fly so it can find a mate and reproduce and die. And I don't know that I believe that. I imagine it must be amazing to go from walking on this tiny little leaf, chewing and eating and thinking, maybe they realize, hey, wow, what am I going to do with the time? And they fly. They get to see the things that they couldn't see. They get to be admired for their beauty and their grace flying in the wind. We get to see from different perspectives, going from plant to plant to plant to plant to plant. And I really believe that our practice is about freedom because we're not tied to just the ordinary mundane. The lowest part of our Buddha nature is higher than our highest part of our mundane nature. When we bow and we lift, we're raising the lowest part of the nature up. That's what we do. We raise people up. We lift them up. It's easy to cut somebody down. It's easy to hurt somebody. It's easy to say, well, they deserved it. It's hard to make a choice. To even if somebody is mean to you and cruel to you and lies to your face, to acknowledge it. Yeah, they have Buddha too. Buddha nature is in them just as much as it is in you. And maybe they're not showing it to you in that moment. I had a student many years ago who got really upset with me because I made a correction uh, in class telling her how to you know, point her toe. I think it was in standing bow pulling pose. I remember it because I was amazed at how strongly this person reacted because she didn't want, she didn't want that correction at that time. She's kind of new, but she wasn't so new where she didn't understand it. And she got really upset with me. And I sat with it afterwards and it, it bothered me. And it took me a day or so where I just sat down with her and I talked with her and I said, hey, 
you know, her name happened to be Michelle. It was not Michelle that I work for, obviously. And I just sat with her and said, hey, you know, you're not a beginner anymore. And then I, I'm sorry that, that I offended you. Um, can we talk about this? And she said, yeah, you know, she was having a bad day. Somebody cut her off in traffic. She almost got in a car accident. Ten years ago, before I was doing this practice, I might not have sat with her. I might have thought, oh, well, that's her thing. You know, that's her. Maybe I wouldn't have taken that extra time to, to sit with her and find out what was going on. And it was great because it changed our, our relationship after we sat down and talked with each other. Um, after I got diagnosed, I was really afraid to, to share with people, especially the yoga studio, because, you know, as a yoga teacher, I thought you had to be healthy. You had to have a certain grasp of the postures, and you had to have a certain, uh, I don't know, I had expectations about what a teacher was before I actually became a teacher. And um, I had to get over that. I'm learning. I'm going to make mistakes. When I got diagnosed, I had to do a um, fundraiser because I needed help. I didn't have the funds to do the type of um, treatments that I wanted. My insurance didn't cover um, complementary therapies. I'm choosing to do a natural herbal thing, and many people think that I'm crazy. Whatever. The first person who gave me a donation in my fundraiser was that woman, Michelle. She gave me $100 so that I could go and do the kind of treatment that I wanted to do. That person supported me when I didn't think anybody would support me. And that changes you. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. And oh, it feels good to take refuge in the Sangha. That's transformation. That's what happens when you do this practice. You might get stuck here and there. Fortunately, we've got people to kind of help give us a little nudge, push us in that direction of our greatest growth, even when we're not ready to realize that, yeah, I'm ready to fly. I'm ready to try something new. And I'm ready to risk failing and falling flat. They say that after a butterfly comes out of its cocoon, it rests for a little bit. And it takes about three or four hours before they've learned how to master how to fly. And then they do it. So the next time that you feel stuck or you don't know what to do, I encourage you to sit. Come up to Jakoji. Come next weekend to our Sashin. Come and do a personal practice period. We got lots of beautiful rooms and lots of space up here, and we're here to help you however you need to be helped. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge. And this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jikoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.